Hey, great to uh, be with you and hear the fantastic work you guys are doing in terms of engaging your community. You know, I'm, I'm a real believer that, uh, you know, we define ourselves as church by how we engage with the community around us. Let's pull this up a little bit. Now, let me just say, I am not a heavyweight, thank you, Ruben, uh, biblical scholar. I, I, I have a, a meager little Bachelor of Theology from Laidlaw College with a, um, I guess you'd call it a major in Old Testament. But, uh, look, great to be with you. And, uh, again, I bring greetings to you from my church, which is West Auckland Vineyard Church. Now, if I can, and also, let me thank you, too, for the support that you give Tear Fund. This church is, has been a, a, a partner of Tear Funds. We've appreciated that. And I know a number of you individually have also supported Tear Fund. Uh, you know, for us, it is aid and development that is understood through the lens of biblical justice and, and uh, Christian action. So thank you for partnering with us. Look, let me just share a little bit about my background. You can tell I've got an American accent. I was actually born in Hollywood, California. My dad was a, an animator for Walt Disney. Um, he left the scene when I was about eight years old. My mother remarried, and my stepfather was Jewish. And from that point on, uh, I grew up in a, in a very much a Jewish home. Uh, while my, father was, my stepfather was somewhat... Um, a secular in his approach to Judaism. As he got older, he got more orthodox. Uh, and so what I'd like to say is I get Judaism. I, I've grown up in it. I have family members that are Holocaust survivors. Um, I have spent time with Jewish communities. And I think I have a fairly good understanding of what Judaism is about. Likewise, with Tear Fund, I've worked extensively on the West Bank with Palestinian communities, Palestinian refugee camps, uh, Palestinian uh, pacifists, Palestinian Christians, and activists that are also striving to bring justice into their land. So I feel I also get the Palestinian issue. I understand the issues uh, the way Palestinians feel in terms of what they consider oppression and injustice. Now, I recognize that this is a controversial subject, and I'm talking to this church, but there's also an opportunity that because it's taped, it's going to go out to a wider audience. And so I'm really asking that we can together just carefully go through Scripture and then give each other some grace, because this is a very, very important topic. This isn't just incidental, because I think our view of modern Israel and the promises and covenants of the Old Testament as they stand go right to the heart of what it means to be a Christian and the promises that we have and we inherit so it's very important. So let's just carefully go through this. Now, <clears throat> I want to respectfully submit to you that actually what we'll call Christian Zionism, and I'll come back to that in a moment, um, actually undermines Christian teaching. And I will posit to you that it does it in a number of ways. First, it undervalues the comprehensive work of Jesus Christ. Uh, secondly, it compromises the biblical call for justice. Uh, third, I think it deeply undermines the church. Uh, it also has a very negative and pessimistic eschatology. In other words, it, it has a very negative view of how the end times are going to roll out. 
And finally, I think it is subtly racist in the way it approaches Arab people, and I dare say even anti-Semitic, in the way that it views Jewish people as object rather than subject, a means to an end. For instance, many Christian Zionists believe that it's important that the temple be rebuilt and the sacrifices begin on the Temple Mount in order not for the continuation of Jewish culture, but instead for the return of Jesus. So Jewish people are seen as, as actors in the Christian drama. Now, what do I mean by Christian Zionism? Let me first start with what I mean by Zionism in, in the, in the, in the straight sense. Zionism is the national movement for the return of the Jewish people to their homeland and resumption of Jewish sovereignty in the land of Israel. And that's plainly. That actually is a quote out of the virtual Jewish library. That's, so that's how Jewish people understand Zionism. Now, Christian Zionism, on the other hand, is where Christians who support the goals of the modern state of Israel based on the belief that God's covenant with Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, Moses, and David are presently being fulfilled in the birth of the nation of Israel and the expansionist Zionist agenda. Can I just get this up just a little bit, bit higher? My glasses, I'm getting older. Now, what I want to make sure that you understand what I am not saying. I am not saying that Christians who believe in the modern state of Israel, according to its UN-mandated borders, has a, does not have a right to exist as a homeland for the Jewish people. If I am a Christian Zionist, if, if, if that's the definition, I believe in the security of the Jewish people, I understand the suffering and the oppression and the pain of the Jewish people and the need for a homeland security. I get that. What I am contending is whether or not the expansionist agenda, the right to a much wider territorial imperative, as believed by Christian Zionists, is correct. Let me be clear what I don't believe. I don't believe that to critique Israel is a sign of anti-Semitism. In fact, we look at the biblical prophets, they were completely, comprehensively critiquing uh, their own people. And in the case of Amos, going from Judah to Israel, actually going to, to, another, to another nation to preach uh, justice to the people. Let me also be very clear, because some people just need to hear this, that I completely renounce any tactic of violence or terrorism by either side, Palestinian or Israeli, in this conflict. I stand comprehensively against Palestinian terrorism. The thing that really hurts me is I've spent a lot of time with Palestinians, and I just tell you that most Palestinians just want to get on with life and want to have, see some kind of justice and some kind of peace come to their land, and they abhor the violence that's taking place. Now, let me start taking uh, a little journey and start unpacking some assumptions that Christian Zionists would hold. One is the restoration of the land to, in, in the modern sense. Christian Zionists believe that the creation of the state of Israel in 1948 is not simply a political marker in history. 
Instead, it's a theological marker. That is to say, it is the fulfillment of covenant promise and prophecy. And it is no different than the restoration of Israel following the Babylonian captivity. Christian Zionists are particularly focused on, say, the very narrow, and I would say misguided interpretation of covenants and certain promises. Now, just quickly, there are three essential covenants in the Old Testament. The first is the Abrahamic, that, that Abraham would be a father of a great nation and his, his, his land would stretch from the Nile to the Euphrates. Second is the Mosaic Covenant, and that's where God speaks of the children of Israel has a special possession. The Ten Commandments and the law are given. And then there is the Davidic Covenant, which really speaks about establishing the throne of David for forever. There will always be David's offspring sitting on the throne. There are also promises that are given, and these are often referred to as well. There's one in Jeremiah 55 that Israel will return to God in an everlasting covenant. Amos 9, which speaks about Israel will be planted in their own land, never to be uprooted. And Zechariah, that the return of Jews to worship in Jerusalem. Okay. Now, of these covenants, let's start with the most basic, and this is the one I will focus on this morning. That is the Abrahamic. The reason why the Abrahamic covenant is so important is, first of all, it gives the biggest swath of land. It goes all the way from Baghdad almost to Cairo. It goes to the north right into the bottom part of Turkey and into the south goes towards Saudi Arabia. It's, it's a huge area of land. It also is what I would call a progen- uh, the, the um, progenitor. It's, it's where it starts. It's, where, it's the seed of all following covenants. This is the covenant that you have to get right for the other covenants to follow. Now, if we read very carefully, I'll I'll take this from um, Genesis 15. On that day, the Lord made a covenant with Abraham and said, To your descendants I give this land and the river of Egypt to the great river of the Euphrates, the land of the Kenites, Kenizzites, Cadmonites, Hittites, Perizzites, Raphaelites, Amorites, Canaanites, Girgashites, and Jebusites. Now, to Christian Zionists, this promise of land inheritance was permanent and unconditional, that the covenant of Abraham continues to be in play today. It's what is called Eretz Israel, and it means the whole land. The term Eretz Israel is Hebrew, and it's still used by the radical settler movement that um, are on occupied land, setting up um, their own settlements, And they are looking to claim and believe that one day they'll claim this whole land that was promised physically back, Eretz Israel. Now, this is a hot topic, not only today, but it was likewise a hot topic during the time of Jesus. Because remember, uh, Israel at that time was an occupied territory. Um, They were awaiting the Messiah as Roman garrisons were, were holding the land. And it's not just a theoretical question. It's demonstrated by the apostles who in Acts 1.6 say, Lord, is it at this time you are going to reestablish the kingdom? There was an expectation that, hey, when is this land thing going to happen? Are you now that you have been crucified and you're risen, are you now going to show your power and, and bring, bring the land back? Are you a national savior? Okay. So when we look at the, the boundaries of this land, 
Paul understands the boundaries as something much different than, than what um, uh, Christian Zionists do. He says this, now listen very carefully, in Romans 4.13. He promised that he would be heir of the world. In other words, he promised Abraham that he would be heir of the world. Therefore, the promise comes by faith, so that it may be by grace and may be guaranteed to all Abraham's offspring, not only those who are of the law, but also those who are of the faith of Abraham. He is the father of us all, as it is written, I have made you the father of many nations. So Paul understands this is a much bigger covenant than that has been previously interpreted. This isn't simply that, that Abraham is the heir of, of a land from Baghdad to nearly Cairo, but Abraham is the heir and his seed, both Jew and Gentile, are seed of the whole world. The whole thing has expanded out now in Paul's thinking. For Paul, the land that is, be, that, that is promised to Abraham is like a country with its center everywhere and circumference nowhere. It's the entire world. It's where faith resides. Now, let's ask ourselves, if that's the case, though, what about who are the heirs to this? I mean, surely it is to the Jewish people, the patriarchs, um, Abraham, Isaac, Jacob. When it comes to the land promise, and this is really important, this is a crux for me in my understanding of it, I open immediately to Galatians 3.16. Easy to remember, because we know John 3.16. Just think of Galatians 3.16. Now, I want you to really, uh, I'll read it to you, but study this very carefully, because it's a key verse, and it's completely overlooked by Christian Zionists. I've never heard them respond to this or, or kind of counter it in any way. Now, the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to one, and to his offspring, which is Christ. Now, that's not me juggling words around. That's the Apostle Paul being very clear that the promise isn't to many. It's not to a people group. It is to Christ Jesus. I'll read that again just so you get it. Now the promises were made to Abraham and to his offspring. It does not say, and to his offsprings, referring to many, but referring to the one, and to his offspring, which is Christ. Now remarkably, Paul argues from the singular noun in the Greek to show that the promises to Abraham, and this means land, point to Christ. It's amazing, okay? Because this controversy was going on, and he wanted to cut through it. He wanted to say, look, let me be clear. This is not about a national issue. You never see Paul actually referring to a reestablishing of, of a Jewish state. The promises to Abraham have been realized in Christ. He holds everything that Judaism desired, and knowing him gains access to the promise. Do you remember, you know, in Romans 6, we have that wonderful passage about, it's well worth, I mean, it's, so deep and, and refreshing that, that we are called to be in Christ. But then likewise, we have that other wonderful promise, Christ in us, the hope of glory. Do you see what Paul is saying here? That people of faith, we, we are set free from this issue of, of land. I often feel that it's a bit like 
for, for, for many people that are stuck on Israel, that it's kind of like being stuck back in the economy class in a long-haul jet. And someone's inviting you to step up in the first class, and you're saying, no, no, I think I'll sit here and be cramped. You know, the promise is much bigger. The promise is for um, a life lived out in faith and grace and not simply restricted in land. Read this, too. This is a very important verse. If we take that one I've just said from um, uh, Galatians, look at 2 Corinthians uh, uh, chapter 1, verse 20. For no matter how many, no matter how many promises God has made, they are yes in Christ. They're in Christ. All these promises are fulfilled in Christ. That is how Paul sees it. Okay. You might ask me, but as Christian Zionists believe, that these um, covenants are unconditional, that they can't, that, that they last forever. Well, let me just say, say this. In one sense, I completely agree they are unconditional and they last forever, and that they have been met in Jesus Christ. As, as Paul has said, all these promises are met in Jesus. But if you want to restrict it to land, if you want to say that the covenant of land is um, immutable, imperishable, and, and, and certainly unconditional, well, you're wrong. Because if you, again, if you turn to, um, to Exodus, you will see that <coughs> there is, it is highly conditional, highly conditional. The people can be thrown off the land for a number of offenses. <coughs> okay, the first one is they must remain, uh, have allegiance to monotheism. They must remain loyal to Yahweh. Secondly, they must remain loyal to the issues of worship and ritual that has been prescribed. They also must remain obedient to the law. They also must be people of moral integrity. And finally, they have to be a people that show and demonstrate justice in the community and to the alien and refugee in their land. Now, when I speak on behalf of Palestinians who are oppressed and, and under servitude, I believe that I am not undermining Israel. I think, if anything, what I'm doing is encouraging and supporting Israel's longevity because Israel, according to the covenants, can lose its right to land by the way it, it treats others, including aliens in their own land. And I will say and I will demonstrate and <laughs> without any compromise that the Palestinian people suffer oppression under the Israeli regime and the Israeli state. And as a Christian who cares about justice, that is very important to me. Now, aren't we then, some Christian Zionists will say, okay, this, this land issue, stretching all the way, as we said, to the Euphrates, all the way to the Nile, up to southern Turkey, down to southern, or the northern border, rather, of Saudi Arabia, doesn't this, this hasn't happened yet, so surely, you know, isn't this going to be fulfilled at some time in the future? Isn't that actual proof that because God's promises are so, are so you know, inviolable and, and, will, and, will, and are sure to come, that because this hasn't occurred yet, surely that means that they will occur at some time in the future. Now, I think I've already made a case before 
that when we talk about land, we are talking about something in, in the New Testament understanding of land, which is much bigger than simply political and social geography. But again, let me just make sure that we are on the same page and, and just, just have a look at this. What is meant? Do we, you know, is, is this land at some point in the future going to be um, uh, taken in to political Israel? Now, that reasoning really ignores the way the Old Testament prophets and writers understood the issues of land and the issues of boundary. We confuse it very much today with our own political understanding in modern 21st century world. We, we're thinking of very tight boundaries and we're thinking of political entities. But I'd like you to consider, you've been looking at Joshua. I think this really is an extraordinarily important uh, thing to take on board and, and, and get. God says to Joshua, be strong and courageous because you will lead these people to inherit the land I swore to their forefathers to give them. And that's in Joshua 1.6. But further, in Joshua 21, he says this. So the Lord gave Israel all the land he had sworn to give to their forefathers. Hang on a minute. But it's not the same land that's... What does this mean? It says he's given all the land that he promised he had given to their forefathers. And they took possession of it and settled there. The Lord gave them rest on every side, just as he had sworn to their forefathers. Not one of their enemies withstood them. The Lord handed all their enemies over to them. Not one, not one of the Lord's good promises to the house of Israel failed. Every one was fulfilled. Now, I'm taking that, that the writer of Joshua understands that the promises of the covenant, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob, those promises of land were understood, has fulfilled. We've got to kind of understand that we're talking in, in, in broad, almost metaphors in a sense, when we talk about, about fixed boundaries. Because certainly, the writer of Joshua felt that everything had been met and accomplished. Okay, so where am I taking this? Where is this going? I think as Christians, we really need to be very careful. We don't go down the Christian Zionist road and, and erode our own sense of the bigness and fullness and comprehensive salvific work of Christ Jesus. Um, I am completely... Um, Christ-centered. That's kind of where I come. That's how I look at things. I interpret the Old Testament through Christ. I, I interpret my, my life, my ethic. You know, it's the old story. What would Jesus do? Who is Jesus in the midst of this? I have a little saying that I ask myself. You know, the, the speaking of that, the thing of WWJB, um, what would Jesus do? Or WWJD, what would Jesus do? I, I had a t-shirt once I made up and I had a, a little fighter on it, a little, little bomber, little F-16. And over the top of it, I had WWJB, and in small letters, who would Jesus bomb? And, you know, it's a good question. Who would Jesus bomb? You know? I don't think he'd bomb anybody, to be blunt. But I had very interesting reactions from people when I wore that T-shirt. Um, 
Now, if, if, if Christ is the summation of all creation, if, if, if Christ is the summation of, of where we are moving, as it says in Colossians, you know, that all things are reconciled in Christ. We need to just go a little bit deeper here. The Old Testament often refers to Israel as a vineyard. It is God's vineyard, and it's, it's the vineyard of his pleasure. You can read that, you know, the song of the vineyard. I will sing of the one I love, a song about his vineyard. My loved one had a vineyard on a fertile land. And, and on it goes, out of, out, of Jeremiah, out of Isaiah 5. Beautiful passage about a vineyard. Now, where do we hear about vineyard in, um, in, in the New Testament? In John, of course. John, John 15. Jesus says, you know, I am the true vine. Jesus is the vineyard now. Jesus is the true vine. I am the vine, you are the branches. If a man remains in me and I in him, he will bear much fruit. Apart from me, you can do nothing. If anyone does not remain in me, he is like a branch that is thrown away and withers. Such branches are picked up, thrown into the fire and burned. If you remain in me and my word remains in you, ask whatever you wish, it will be given to you. This is my Father's glory. You bear much fruit, showing yourselves to be my disciples. Um, you know, again, as I said before, the fulfillment of all things is found in Jesus. The idea that it's not yes or no, for the Son of God, Jesus Christ, who was preached among you by me and Silas and Timothy, was not yes and no, but in him it has always been yes. Those are the promises. Now, to think Christianly about covenant, land, and promise is to think differently than how Judaism looks at land. In short, the kingdom of God is not tied to ethnicity or race, people, or place. That's why when you look through it in, in Hebrews and Revelation, Jesus is, is put before us as the new temple, the new Israel, the Messiah of God's people. And to be certain, the Sanhedrin completely, the council, as Jesus was, was being tried before being crucified, they completely understood that's what Jesus was saying. That's why he was was crucified fundamentally. Because the challenge he put before the Jewish leaders was so scandalous, was so disruptive to the, 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 the national paradigm and notion of, 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 of land and boundary, political substance. It was so undermining to that that Jesus had to be crucified. That's the main reason why he's so outraged and I think points to another fact of how we should be understanding this thing. Now, the Old Testament, too, let's be clear, is, as I say, I, I view the Old Testament, I interpret the Old Testament through the New. I believe that as Christians we're called to do that. It doesn't mean the Old Testament doesn't inform us, but the Old Testament fundamentally, primarily, does not um, inform the new. It is the new that informs the old. But still, many, many shafts of light come through the Old Testament, pointing to exactly what I'm talking about. And one of them is that wonderful passage in Jeremiah 31. Um, and that's where it says, a time is coming, says Jeremiah. A time is coming, declares the Lord, when I will make a new covenant 
And he goes on to say, it will not be like the covenant I made with their forefathers. The Lord, Yahweh is himself, is, uh, is, is moving. I don't think that, this, that God is contradicting his covenant. He is, in fact, expanding it. He is pointing out to the people, look, it's like I said before, it's like being in the back seat on a long-haul jet with really big, fat people next to you. And you're coming. He's saying, look, you don't get it. There's a bigger covenant for you. And it's part of this. But it, look, have a bigger picture. Increase your bandwidth. Let the paradigm enlarge. Because I'm going to put my law in your hearts. It's not going to be something that you, you're, you're having to do and follow a legal code. I'm going to put it in your hearts. Um, in your minds, rather. I'm going to write it on your hearts. I will be your God, and you will be my people. For I will forgive their wickedness, and I will remember their sins no more. Now, the new covenant is comprehensively fulfilled and ministered through his church to the entire world. Now, this is an area I think we need to be very careful on and, and, and hold and not let go of. There is kind of a pseudo-theology. When I meet with Christian Zionists and they talk like this, they always they come up with this, this phrase. They say, oh, you, you, must, um, uh, you must be a, re- a replacement thinker a replacement theologian, that you believe you're the replacement of Christ, replacement of, of the Jewish people. Now, replacement theology is based on the belief that Israel, that is the Jewish people and the land, have been replaced by the Christian church in the purposes of God, or more precisely, the church is the historic continuation of Israel. They say that is, that's what replacement theology is, and they say that is wrong. Okay, let me say where I'm coming from in relationship to the church. First of all, the church does not replace the Jewish people or any other people for that matter. Secondly, however, the church is the structure and primary vehicle of the comfort for the whole world in this present time until Christ returns. All nations and all institutions can be used in God's purposes, including the modern state of Israel. But it is the church which is the preeminent vehicle for both Jew and Gentile. It is, it is God's purposes primarily are worked out through the church, first and foremost. That is what Christians believe and never let go of that. I think it's really a battle going on for that now, and it's being undermined by this Christian Zionist thinking. Um, and, you know, that, that's what Romans 9 to 11 is really all about. It's giving this argument that I've placed before you now. Sometimes it's used in, in a land context by Christian Zionists, but nowhere in those three chapters is there any mention of land. 9 to 11 of Romans is all about God beseeching the Jewish people to take their place of leadership not in the land, but in the church. And he's exhorting Gentile Christians to move over and, 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 and give some space for the Jewish people to take up their place of leadership in the church. Not to be arrogant that they feel that this is theirs, that the prize of the church is theirs in some sense, but to make room for the Jewish people to take their place within the church. Now, Let's just, you know, make sure that um, 
Oh, just one other thing I could say. The, the issue of the church, too, I think, in Reformed theology, goes something like this. The church is not simply the creation of the New Testament. In Reformed theology, the church is understood as wherever people gather to worship God. So, it could be the tribe, it could be the clan, it could be the family in the Old Testament. It was the nation at one point. There has always been the church. Do you follow? In, in, in Orthodox, Evangelical, Reformed theology, there has only been the church. But the church is, is, is renewed and restructured by, by Christ. It becomes his body in the New Testament sense. Now, I think, I think this is the kicker. If this doesn't really kind of um, clarify that, that the church is preeminent in the vehicle and in fact represents um, the, the kind of the, the focus of God's will and, and, uh, and work in the world. I don't know what does. Here we go. Good old 1 Peter 2, 9 to 10. Uh, excuse me. Chapter 2, verses 9 to 10. You are a chosen people, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, his own special people, that you may proclaim the praises of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. You who once were not a people are now among the people of God. You are the people of God who have not obtained mercy, but now have attained mercy. Do you hear what, he's, what, what, what Peter's saying there? Peter, the righteous Jew, he is saying this, that Christians and the church is a chosen generation, a royal priesthood, and a holy nation. Let's get really clear again. What does it say in Galatians? That there is neither Jew nor Gentile, slave or free, male or female. So much of the kind of Christian Zionist thinking about trying to, to reinterpret the covenants in this political expansionist sense undermine the very root of what we are talking about, about a new people, one in Christ Jesus. I vigorously oppose Christian Zionism and vigorously oppose the, the, the whole notion that God's purposes in this world right now are being worked out through a geographical um, uh, hunk of real estate in the Middle East. The work is complete, it is finished, it is done in Christ, and one new man has been created through Christ Jesus. And the sooner that... I mean, I, I, I'm hoping that many of you hold to that, but may I just encourage you, don't let it go easily, because I think that this, this is quite a pervasive kind of belief, that somehow the church is a parenthesis to one side, that there's kind of two covenants going. There's kind of the covenant of, of Jesus, and then there's the old Abrahamic covenant or Mosaic covenant being worked out through the Jewish people. There is one covenant and one covenant alone, and it is the blood of Christ that has saved us and brought us together as one people, Jew and Gentile. If I could just, uh, in finishing, <coughs> just, just point out, to one other issue, which is very important to me, has uh, working in tear fund and concerned for justice. Many Christian Zionists um, are, are, are really supportive of, of, of getting, they say, that the 
Palestinians have no right to the land that they're in. They need to get out. They need to be moved. Um, they, 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 the refugee camps uh, are, are places of real squalor, if you, if you visited them. Uh, they, they, they have poor access to water, poor access to infrastructure, while people in Jerusalem and, and, in, and in the state of Israel enjoy first world standards better than we have here in New Zealand and yet on their doorsteps. And we're talking a small country. We're talking a 10, 15-minute drive down the road. There is squalor. Now, justice is what God called his people to. He said it in Isaiah 117. Seek justice and encourage the oppressed. The northern tribes of Israel actually went into captivity because they oppressed the alien in their own land. And God sent them to, like, into captivity. As Christians, we live under a rule of justice that isn't an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It's about turning the other cheek. It's about going the extra mile. It's about, as Paul says, that we are called to be ministers of reconciliation. And my concern is that we kind of live or we are in danger of living this kind of duplicity where we can care about children in Darfur or the poor in Central Africa, but we feel somehow unchristian if we stand with Palestinians. And I'll tell you what, I, mean, I spend time with the Palestinian church. What we had going on here this morning is no different than praise and worship I've had in the Palestinian church. Do you know it's easier for me to go visit the Palestinian church, you know, 12,000 miles away, than it is for a Palestinian to go to Jerusalem and worship in Jerusalem, which is only eight miles away, because of the wall, because of the restrictions, and all of that. We are called to be comprehensively people of justice wherever we are. And my concern is that Christian Zionism is giving us this view that says, okay, yeah, justice is important. We believe in justice for everybody, well, except the Palestinians. They're, 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 they're a bit of a problem. What is for, what is, well, generally Arabs and Muslims, you know, they're, 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 they're kind of in the too hard basket. And all of these stereotypes about who these people are. I want, we need to be very careful Christians are called to be salt and light in our world. We are to be the people that speak up for justice. We are the people that are called to speak up for the oppressed. I don't think it's necessarily the UN or NGOs. I think it's the church. And if we're going to stick up for poor Somalians, we should be sticking up for poor Palestinians. And likewise, in love, we should be speaking to our brothers and sisters in Israel, and say, show mercy, show compassion. Because as you do, you secure your, 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 your place in the land. Let me close in prayer. Father, as Christians, uh, we want to be clear that we are indebted to the Jewish, Jewish people. Lord, we pray for their peace. As your word says, we should pray for the peace of Jerusalem. But Lord, too, we recognize that we should be sharing the gospel. We should be uh, taking opportunities to 
let the people of Israel, our Jewish brothers and sisters, know that as heirs of the gospel, they have a special place and, and a place of honor. And Lord, I just pray that your gospel would be, would be given out to the Jewish people and the people of Israel clearly and unambiguously. That it wouldn't be hidden under a, a cloak of, of kind of uh, legalism and uh, Christian Zionism, but that we'd, we would be able to have the Jewish people come to you through a clear understanding of the gospel. And Father, too, we want to encourage the Jewish people in the ways of justice, in the ways of justice that the prophets taught them. Father, I want to just pray for all of us here that we would be people of discernment, that we would be very, very careful to not find ourselves being swayed away from the comprehensive promise that Christ is the fulfillment of of all covenants, all promises of the Old Testament. That we look to a future, Lord, not, not, not of dread, not even necessarily of, of, of wars and, and calamity, but we can look forward to Christ Jesus, who is our hope. And I pray, Lord, we just hold firm to the true teaching and orthodox teaching that we've been given throughout uh, two millennia that all things are reconciled in Christ Jesus. We just... Thank you for the privilege of being Christians. Safeguard our hearts, safeguard our minds, that we might hold true uh, to, to the great promise that we have in Christ. Amen.